0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 62 of this Whitewater podcast. Before we get into it, I want to let you know we're getting ready to launch a new show here at the Hammer Factor called The Hot Seat. I'll be bringing on athletes and professionals from outside the Whitewater world to hopefully share their genius with you. The few interviews I've recorded so far have been fascinating and I'm excited to see where this thing goes. Go to hammerfactor.com and subscribe to The Hot Seat and don't worry, this Whitewater show isn't going anywhere. Thanks again, and here we go. Episode 62. You're listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on The Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. (laughs) Restart. Starting this over. All right, here we are, uh, episode sixty-two of the Hammer Factor Whitewater Podcast. My name is John Grace, producer here at the show. I'd like to introduce my co-host, John Weld, owner of Immersion Research, Lewis Geltman, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance. Lewis, this show is going to be all about you, man. This is going to be Lewis's victory parade.
1: The victory lap. I mean, holy hell! Yeah. Dude, I mean, it's everybody's, right? Right. Yeah. It's been a while. Cool. Uh, we got some stuff done.
0: It's been a while since we had a podcast. Since uh, since our last discussion, there was a lot going on with this public lands package throughout the course of the last few shows. It's been happening. It was going to get passed. It was dead. And then it was back to life. And now it's one small signature from being law, to the best of my understanding.
1: One large gold flecked Sharpie signature away. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs>
0: um, so
2: can let's... I point out? Can I point out that we know this is a whitewater podcast because all of us are wearing down jackets inside our poorly heated workplaces. <laughs> what do you
1: What do you guys keep the thermostat at at your house? Somebody asked me about it the other day. Well, I just spent my entire
2: professional career in crappy buildings. Like the
1: idea of going to work
2: in a climate controlled office is just at this point uh, that's just never going to happen like i I'm just going to yeah. go to for the rest of my life in cold buildings and then hot in the summer
1: I've been like huddled next to the wood stove all morning and I just came next into the office to record the podcast <laughs> i actually i what I've been intending to do is to start the podcast with an apology to John Weld for dragging him out to this frozen hellscape we live in that it used to be. <laughs> some sort of whitewater paradise, but I don't know anymore. I heard the little white is full of trees now. Really?
2: That's what Max is saying. It's like full of wood. He was very pessimistic. I'm not sure what that means, but yeah, he was not too pleased with this issue. Heavy snows and a ton of wood, like tons and tons of wood. He seemed to imply it was unprecedented,
1: or at least in his experience. Yikes, I hadn't heard that. That's a depressing note to start the day on like any specifics or just it's did he go or that's they've been paddling it and I guess they went in at like
2: hit him and um that that uh Peter Ellie Peter what's his last name ellie yeah I Eli. Like, yeah uh they went in and cut some wood out of like two three this weekend but um it sounds troublesome I don't know
0: <sighs> well if it well. makes you, makes you feel any better it's 60 degrees and raining three to four inches a week here in the southeast. So if you need to warm up and go kayaking, just come on out. All right, all right boys, before we get into this show, I want to give a shout-out to Extreme Sport VECO. You can go to their website, forward slash Hammer Factor. There is an entire guide to anyone who wants to come, everything you need to know about transport to river logistics to pretty much anything you can think of if you want to go on a paddling trip there. And at this event, mountain biking, bouldering, longboarding, bike, trail, mountain biking, BMX, that's just the ground sports. In the air they've got paragliding, base jumping, skydiving, speed flying. They got a wind tunnel that they do a comp in, swooping on the water. They got kayaking, free riding, rafting, big air, like a freestyle competition. They've got the honorable citizen challenge, these multi sport events. This event is pretty much off the hook. Check it out. Extreme Sport VECO forward slash Hammer Factor.
1: Dude, what do we have to do to get Hammer Factor flown to Norway for Extreme Sports VECO? I want to go, dude.
0: I tried to figure out some kind of live coverage or something from there. I don't think they quite had the budget for it this year, but I want to go too. I mean, looking through that list and all the videos that they have on each of those things, I didn't even know all these air sports have existed. I mean, I knew there was, like, skydiving, but I, I had no idea what they were doing with speed flying now. And... <laughs>
1: anyway. There were, like, yeah, seriously. I feel like there were, like, a handful of times when, in the course of your kayaking career when you see some piece of video or just somebody do something that you're just like, holy shit, I'm way behind the times. And, like, one of those times for me was seeing John Grace kayaking in Norway at some LBM or something like that. <laughs> Did you, like, you guys Holy shit, these <laughs> guys are in another level.
2: <laughs> so I ran into Gavir at uh, a ski shop here in town the other day. You, you guys know Gavir, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you know, like, Stefan from oh, yeah. Saturday Night Live? You know that character, mm-hmm. Gelman, Stefan? From what? Saturday Night Live? No. No? Anyway, Gavir is the Stefan of outdoor sports in the gorge, because he's like, immediately, he's like the hottest new sport in the gorge is like kite kite blading and you're like what he's like it's got everything kites <laughs> blades foils parachutes Hawaiian uh, uh, guys uh, uh. named Kai he immediately of like this thing he's doing that I've never heard of before it's it's like a stand-up paddleboard with like a foil on it have you seen this
3: craze
0: oh yeah oh yeah this is a big thing the whole the whole foiling craze uh oh well they lost you
2: so i've never been more interested in doing a stand-up paddleboard type thing as that it's like it's like a foil that goes down in the water you like pump it like a skateboard they're hauling ass around the columbia on this thing anyway
0: it is sick i mean because they they can like they can like pump from like bounce to bounce from wave to wave you know so they're like when one swell like kind of fades out and dissipates they just like look over their shoulder and like pump out to the next one and ride it it's got yeah. some it's got some cool stuff going
1: on yeah it looks cool like minimal paddling maximum surfing. <laughs> yeah i feel like 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 i don't know about the the, the S- whitewater SUP business in general as we've <laughs> well covered but I'd know enough to know not to be dismissive of whatever your thinks is the new hot thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is true.
0: Well, we got a big show lined up today. We got Rocky Contos on the show. You know, Rocky Contos, a hundred and seven first descents in Mexico alone. Did you guys know this?
1: I, didn't, I couldn't have given you that number, but... <laughs> well,
0: I was just going over his bio, and I was like, whoa, that is like a serious stat. We got the Long Creek Gangsters coming on to ask Lewis a question about some logging in the headwaters. That ought to be interesting. I have no idea
1: how that's going to be. It's going to be a real low point when the Long Creek Gangsters stump me on <laughs> whatever their public lands <laughs> issue is.
0: <laughs> we got a ton of listener mail, rants and raves, and much, much more, so... Lewis, let's throw it over to you. You know, for all of our listeners who, who don't have, let's do a brief history of this public lands package, what it's called, and then we'll kind of go to what's in it, what you wish was in it, and kind of kind of get into the details there.
1: Man, yeah. So last week, the house passed this, uh, this huge public lands package that we've been working on for quite a long time. Uh, I think the actual title is like the National Resources Management Act or something along those lines. The bill number is S-47. It's about 100 different uh, public lands bills, like mostly protective designations, or some of them are, are kind of like more local issues, like transferring eight acres of BLM land to a county to put in a water tower or something like that. But um, there are a ton of... of there's a ton of new wilderness, like more than a million acres of new wilderness, more than 600 miles of new wild scenic rivers. This is basically it sort of pulls together a ton of individual bills. Some of them are things that we've worked on for a really 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 long time and it, uh it reauthorizes the land and water conservation fund permanently again, something that's been a huge priority that we've worked on forever. Um just like couldn't be more stoked to get all these things across the finish line. And I don't know. I mean, like so many of the things that we work on, like so often we'll be working on a protective designation. Like, like one I keep thinking about is this, uh, mountains to sound greenway national heritage area, which is just East of Seattle. It's like the Snoqualmie Valley basically. And it basically just helps the, it's a landscape that has federal land management, uh, some state lands, some private lands, some county lands, and it basically just helps all of those land managers work together more effectively on sort of big-scale planning. And, you know, frankly, hopefully it's something that will help, you know, protect earnings, which uh, AW just defeated that dam proposal on last year. Um, But, like, that bill is something that we've worked on you know at times more concertedly than others but something that we've worked on for years and years and years and it's like you just never know when the stars are finally going to align to get something like that across the finish line and it's i don't know it feels sort of validating when there are these bills like that that we've worked on for years never quite knowing what the end game is you know, to finally see those things through is, is feels good. Like it feels good to sort of validate that like irons in the fire approach where there are things that we're working on and, you know, it might take years, but eventually you'll get a chance to, to see it through. And, you know, the same with land and water conservation fund reauthorization, like I'm, I mean, it's a super important program. We've talked about it on here before. It uh, takes a portion of the royalties from offshore oil and gas drilling and redirects it towards conservation and recreation projects. The example I always use is the uh, the river access point at BZ Corner here on the White Salmon. That's the takeout for the truss and the put-in for the middle White Salmon. I mean, somewhere that... I mean, I personally visit that parking lot probably 75 or 100 times a year, and it's just, you know, it's just a parking lot and the trail down to the river. But I mean, like, as you guys know, with the green and all the access challenges you've had down there, sometimes that's all you need to like, take someplace that really is a public resource and make it truly a public resource, like a place that people have access to and can visit and do their thing, you know? So yeah, just like, pretty over the moon about it it's probably I mean not even probably I mean it's the biggest success we've had and in my time doing this work so it's uh it's sick nice and yeah and I mean I don't know I mean just you know I was in DC last week and just like reflecting on on you know my time on the hill and visiting you know congressional offices or land managers it's like it's like I need, you know, like, when we send you guys emails, like, if you're on the Outdoor Alliance email list, and we ask you to write your lawmaker about something, like, you know, it's important. We always ask when it's important. Like, we're never just, like, you know, trying to fundraise by doing that or giving people a, you know, something to do to feel busy or whatever. It's, like, those times when people in our community write to their lawmakers, it's, like, that's what creates the that's like what validates me in a way so that I can go have those conversations because nobody listens to me because I'm like clever or I have some like, like great idea or something. It's because do they listen to people... the hammer factor? I've not run across any Factor <laughs> listeners on the hill. Just a matter but of time. I mean, it's like, it's like those, I those tried people that, I tried that hard to believe, but yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they, you know, it's like, they care what I have to say because they know that I'm representing a lot of their constituents and like who care about these issues and they're like well if i listen to lewis then you know i'm helping to you know do what these 200 constituents who wrote me an email want you know and so like for me to be able to go talk to these people and have productive conversations kind of behalf on on behalf of the things that we all collectively want it's like you guys help me do that when you write your congress critters or call or whatever so thank you guys
0: so Lewis in this in this act that initially passed the Senate made its way through the house, do you know the stats on what's in there? I know there's x number of miles of protection for wild and scenic rivers the LWCF funding is in there what what are what are kind of the laundry list of items that are in there?
1: Oh man, I can't even reel it off, but i I think it's like more than a million acres of wilderness, six hundred plus miles of wild and scenic rivers. Land and Water Conservation Fund reauthorizes the program at $900 million a year, but that money still has to be appropriated by Congress. So the next thing, basically, the money comes into this account every year, $900 million, but it doesn't get spent until Congress spends it. And the next big LWCF-related um, campaign is going to be to make that, that fund dedicated, meaning that... Instead of Congress having to say, yeah, we know we took in $900 million for conservation this year, but we're only going to spend $450 million, which is what's happened. That's about the average over the life of the program. We're going to make it so that, or we would like to make it so that that $900 million just gets spent, that the agencies develop their list of priorities and the money's already there. And it goes without Congress having the chance to basically steal a portion of this money and use it for other stuff, which is what's been happening for a long time. For decades, that's been happening, eh? That's right. The Oregon Wildlands Act was a part of this. It has a bunch of new protections for the Rogue and Rivers down southwest Oregon. Um, Metow, Headwaters, Mineral Withdrawal. The Metow is like a a super important outdoor recreation zone. um, Kind of in like north central Washington that's threatened by a huge copper mine. There's a mineral withdrawal for an area right outside of Yellowstone that was threatened by mining. Um, this Emory County, Utah bill is just like, I mean, unbelievable that all of the various stakeholders and in, in, you know, people who care about that landscape from like Suwa to Warren Hatch managed to come to an agreement on protecting, you know, this huge amount of wilderness down there, uh, new wild and scenic rivers. New uh, recreation area with mineral withdrawal down there. So just I don't know a ton of really good stuff. We're fired up. That's so rad. So I saw in one of the
0: emails I got from Tanya there was uh, there was mention of a, a few little things that didn't make it into the bill. What would that be? What 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 do you got going on there, Louis?
1: Um, my pen just exploded in <laughs> my hands.
0: Yeah, if you, got, if you guys can see this, lewi's whole arm is is now black. <laughs>
1: Ah. (laughs) Um, You know, the biggest thing for us was this Recreation Not Red Tape Act that we've been working on for years and does a bunch of things. But the biggest thing is helping land management agencies when they go through planning to look for potential new national recreation areas in the same way that they're required to look for potential new wilderness and potential new wild and scenic rivers. Um, You know, we worked hard to try to get that in there. We like really pulled out all the stops but there is a sense that, you know, the Senate had not even given that bill a hearing, even though it had moved through committee in the House. And the sense is that the Senate is interested in doing some more recreation policy related stuff, like rather than just, you know, specific protected designations that they're interested in, in making some policy changes to benefit outdoor recreation, this Congress. So I had some good conversations when I was back in DC this week. and you know we expect that bill to get reintroduced later this spring uh, from Senator Ron Wyden in Oregon. Um, and yeah, I expect to hear more, but I, I, I sort of like our odds, honestly, this Congress.
0: And I'm gonna talk more about this in my rant later in the show. I got a good lengthy rant <laughs> to throw out at the end of the show, but nice. you know, just to have such bipartisan support, and all of the time and that has been put in and it never got partisan and just to pass through that, that's so much time and effort and work and you and Kevin Colburn, I mean, A.W. and all the different people who went in on that. I mean, it's just from the little bit I know, oh, my God, man. That's some good Thanks, work.
1: Thanks, man. And, like, I just, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a huge team effort and, you know, from Outdoor Alliance, our member organizations, Outdoor Industry Association, Conservation Alliance, you know, all the traditional conservation organizations, just like a huge, big, broad effort to make this thing happen. And, um, you know, what you're saying about bipartisanship, I mean, I think, you know, anybody who's listened to this show for 15 minutes, like my personal politics are abundantly clear, but we uh, <laughs> we, we try hard to not make. You know, public lands and waters—a a partisan issue. Like we don't want this to be abortion or gun control or something like that. Like we want this to be something where, um, you know, Republicans feel like it's a political winner for them to to support these policies. And I think they're getting that message. Like if you look at, you know, polling, especially in the West or all across the West, is where I see it from. Conservation is a bipartisan issue for sure, but members of Congress on the Republican side have not always gotten that message. And, you know, it's a hopeful sign that maybe they're starting to get it. So, um, it's good.
0: How do we get that message to my boy, Mark Meadows,
1: man? Hmm. Oh man. Mark Meadows is, I, Mark Meadows is is part of the Outdoor Recreation Caucus. Yeah, how does that's what I'm saying, house. and he votes against
0: this bill. <laughs> like, how does that happen,
1: dude? I don't know. I think I mean, for one, write him an email, and tell him you're pissed about it. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I. I don't want to get too in the weeds on on the composition of the outdoor recreation caucus, but I think they need to set a little higher bar for for membership. You know, like you have to actually, you should have to actually do something, not just. Uh, he's the Freedom Caucus as well, sign right? Sign up. He, isn't he one of like the founding members of the Freedom Caucus?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean,
1: he's the. That's
2: a weird overlap of like a Venn diagram <laughs> between those two caucuses. <laughs> I mean, I, Mark Meadows is the one intersection point.
1: That. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I encourage all you guys in Asheville to lean on that guy. I mean, I don't. It, it may well be that he doesn't have any particular uh, hard and fast opinions about our issues, and he just is mainly focused on defending Donald Trump at all costs. So maybe maybe he's malleable on on conservation. I don't know. God, dude. I mean, <laughs> he
0: is just like he, I was looking at his voting record, and you. I mean, talk about someone who doesn't seem to represent the. People of Western North Carolina. I mean, jeez, Louise, it's freaking off the hook. I'm gonna have to run against them. We were talking about that earlier in the show. It may be my first campaign. Me against Mark Meadows, dude. <laughs> dude,
3: do it, do it, do it.
1: Oh man, well, I. Maybe we can repurpose all the uh, all the Dan West memes for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll see. We got a little time before I got to make that decision. Um. MPFF, you guys were like all crickets when we were going to do the live show out there, but I went to the National Paddling Film Festival this week. Is there anything, not to not to shift gears, Lewis, is there anything else you want to add to that before we move on? No. I okay. don't Anyway, congratulations. That's pretty Thanks, rad. Man.
2: Yeah, congrats. Yeah.
0: yeah, to you and everybody from all the different land. I mean, dude, so much communication and time and effort and trips to D.C. and just beating your head against the wall and the tangled mess and all of a sudden poof. Do you think do you think it's gonna get signed?
1: I do. Yeah. I mean I, I, I haven't really heard anything one way or the other. I looked to see if there was like a, a statement of administrative administration policy on it, which would where it be where they would, you know, issue some sort of veto threat and there wasn't anything. It passed with veto proof majorities. So I think we're I think we're good. Nice. Anyway. National Paddling Film Festival was a
0: really good time. Um some good films. I've, I went to that film festival in 2003, a long, long time ago. And, mm-hmm. man, they have certainly uh, certainly built that thing up. It's pretty cool. And one thing they had, i got to run this uh, idea by you guys, a new discipline – it's not really a new discipline, but it's just like a thing in paddle sports. So they had this race up there, the Jess Cup. They had, a f- they had full both men and women's classes in the SUP division. So they had <laughs> they didn't have full classes in the kayak division, but the the sub division was huge. But anyway, there was like 50 or 60 racers out there and it's kind of a class two. Wait,
1: paddling SUP in the winter in Kentucky.
0: Oh, crushing it, dude. They had five girls and five boys. Full classes. Yeah. So, but anyway, bear with me for a second. This has nothing to do with SUP. So you guys can you
2: know. We can relax.
0: Yeah, you can <laughs> relax. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can relax. <laughs> but they they have this race, and it was pretty cool listening to everybody talk about it. I've raved about racing a lot, you know, because it's a mass start event, and everybody at the party was talking about, you know, some of the going back and forth, the boats they had. Some people were in sea kayaks. The winning boat was a Piranha Speeder. Do you know what that boat is? Yeah. A speeder. You ever heard of that one? Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, that was like the <laughs> –
2: Live in a cave, yeah, for this theater. <laughs> well, anyway, they were just it's talking about over all... <laughs> twelve feet. Of course, I've heard of it. It's <laughs> by this company called Warner. Have you guys heard?
0: Ah, uh, well, dude, I never know with you guys. I never know. You know what I mean? I start talking about Sup, and you drift off into wherever.
2: No, we're just waiting for the cycle back to the green race, which is inevitably where it's going to go.
0: <laughs> well, the the green race is the green race is currently done its job. You know, whatever. You know, whitewater racing, class 5 racing is a thing. Long butts are a thing. Everybody's got them. You know, it's kind of mission accomplished there. But this event, everybody was so stoked about it. So many different skill levels. It's time to start an ultra paddling series. Anything over 26 miles races. Okay. So on all of these class 1, 2, 3 rivers, we need like 40 mile races, 50 mile races, whatever. And we need to start an ultra paddling series.
1: What are you guys' thoughts on that? I think we should just hand the tro- trophy over to Andrew McEwen right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, <has> a <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's what I'm
0: saying. Like, he needs to be the ultra paddling world champion, and he can come down to the Battle of the Broad on June 1st, and then we're going to have the first ultra paddling world championship.
2: I've always wanted to have a race from the top yacht. Like, to put into the top yacht all the way to the mouth of the yacht, you know, yacht Annie at McKeesport. Oh, and I mean, you, can, you,
1: can,
2: you can only pick one boat. You, have to, you choose one boat. So if you if you can get, like, a... Well, you certainly get a down over boat down, like, a wave hopper down the upper yacht. I don't know about the top yacht. You have to go across the lake. I don't know. It's going to be... It's long. Just, I'm going to say 70 miles.
0: That'd be sick. Could you have, like, a partner? What was could that? What? Could you have like a, like a stage? Could you do it in like stages where you could have like three people on a team, one guy to do like the hard white water and then another guy to get in and crush the flats?
2: I mean, the, the to me, the interesting part would be the fact that you're going to, especially if it's one boat, you're going to be going across a 20 mile lake. You're going to be paddling class four, four ish white water. You have Ohio Pile Falls in there, which is, if I understand this correctly, if you don't put in or take out on park property, you can run Ohio Pile Falls legal anytime you want. And if you did the race, that would certainly be the case. Uh, it only becomes an issue when you access or egress the river on park property and run the falls at the same time. Geltman, does that make sense? Does that? That's the. That's the, always the way I've, it's been explained to me. I haven't looked.
0: That'd be sick. That I can know. be. The, that can be the Ultra Paddling World Championship next year.
1: So I've been wanting to have. Out here for a while to do a uh, like a teams race on the, the whole white salmon, like from uh, from Trout Lake to the Columbia, but it would only be like twenty miles. But it would be a good race. We could we could extend it up the Columbia and finish at Chips.
0: Anyway, those guys did a good job up at MPFF. <laughs> it was a it was a super fun event. I want to say thanks to those guys for having me up there. Man, how did we get behind already?
1: Can I go wash the ink off my hands? Hang on. You need to do a show like every two days. All
0: right, real quick. Before you go wash the ink off your hands, Lewis, did you see this article in the Adirondack Explorer? Um, <laughs> essentially. Yeah,
1: I was, I was just doing my daily check at Adirondack Explorer.
0: Look, dude, I emailed this to you, cocksmoke. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> Man God anyway, there was a big case, and they voted for this seventy mile canoe trip between publicly owned lands. There's this little two or three this is right up your wheelhouse. You need to be on top of this, my man. I gotta write somebody, your boss Tanya, or something here because there's there's a piece of water it's like two miles long it's on private land it intersects these the seventy mile canoe route canoe route, and they just ruled um. That it was private land and they you couldn't use it to access between the uh, between the two
1: areas. Have you heard
0: anything about this?
1: This vaguely rings a bell. Um, you know, there are a few places where there's where access laws or right to float laws are are sort of like perennially an issue. Like Colorado is the one that's always top of mind for me because your right to paddle on small streams out there is is uh. I don't want to say your right is tenuous, but the laws around your – the laws are, are less than clear, and it's just constantly an issue. And I, I think New York might be a state that's in sort of a similar camp. So I, I guess I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't really have anything feel to add.
0: <laughs> yeah, a judge ruled that uninvited paddlers – I guess by the landowner, have no right to canoe the 1.8-mile mud pond waterway.
4: Hmm.
0: Anyway, I thought, you know, I thought that was an interesting case. This is something that uh, we'll maybe have to bring somebody else who's got a little bit more knowledge in the future to talk about. Because, I mean, just imagine you were talking about just paddling the yacht. If there was, like, a section of the yacht, you weren't allowed to paddle like a two-mile section because it flowed yeah. through private land on both sides or whatnot.
1: I mean, oftentimes the test is whether the waterway was susceptible to commercial use at the time of statehood, basically. And that oftentimes is, is judged by like its ability to float logs or float timber to market. And if there's no evidence that it was susceptible to some sort of commercial use when the state became a state, then access can get a little a little fuzzy so it's uh it's not surprising one more
0: over here to lewis before you before you wash the ink off of your arm um (laughs) this comes at us from trevor trevor mc spick he says a while ago you guys were talking about the uh shakti mat from new zealand and i don't and i think someone ordered one any reviews that was you lewis huh
1: yeah have I not like bent your ears about the Shakti mat yet no mm-hmm. you got it you said you ordered it and it came in but you were going to get back to us with the, with the review oh dude it's epic I I'd go to bed on it every single night and then just wake up whenever I wake up and pull this thing out from under me but the Shakti mat is it sort of looks like a three quarter length camp mat and then it's covered in these like spikes on top that are sort of reminiscent of um, soft spikes like on golf cleats And so you lay on it and you get this kind of like bed of nails effect. And for the first like four minutes, it's pretty uncomfortable, especially if you hadn't done it for a while. And then your whole back just kind of relaxes and the sort of discomfort of it goes away. And you lay on this thing for like 20 minutes. I pretty much always fall asleep. And then... When you get up, it's like you feel like you just had a massage. Like all the little tiny muscles in your back are like super super limber. Like if you have like tightness in your back anywhere that's bothering you, it's pretty much gone. Like every single person I've given this thing to try has immediately gone and bought one. It's like it's epic. Just like if your back is, I mean, just buy one. Seriously, it's it's super super sweet. I'll put a
0: link to the Shakti mat in the show notes. That sounds rad. Yeah, now I like want
1: I like. Cannot re- recommend it highly enough.
0: All right. Well, you know what? We got a lot of people to get on the show here. Before we move on, let's get the uh, Long Creek Gangsters on here.
1: All right. I'm going to go wash the ink off my hands. Let's see if I can find
0: the Long Creek Gangsters. Hello. Go. Yo. Hunter Cooper, you're on the Hammer Factor. How you doing?
3: Yo, what's up, John?
0: How, how you doing, man? Where you at?
3: Dude, right now, I'm actually sitting right here with uh, Ben Drew. Uh, we are in uh, the Humble Pie here in Long Creek, South Carolina. It's actually not open, but we are uh, <laughs> we're poaching Wi-Fi. Yeah, we're poaching Wi-Fi. <laughs> and, uh, sitting here. It's a pretty nice place. So.
0: Uh, I wouldn't expect anything different. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah,
3: Thanks for having us.
0: So Hunter Cooper, Benny Drew, let's start off with who are the Long Creek Gangsters and what are they?
5: Oh man, we're, uh, we're a paddling organization. It's a club. It's not a gang, it's a club.
0: Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know, we're just, we're just a group of guys that uh, we like to go slicey voting and, uh, and tread our faces off but you know i don't know we just we just like to go kayaking really it's yeah. kind of become something more than really what it was ever supposed to be <laughs> yeah so kind of just the, you know where it all began is uh there's this uh deal name gentleman named uh glenn webster uh he's from somewhere out west ended up in long creek he is uh the town hobro and he was just always you know he's always <laughs> saying keep long creek gangster so you know that's where the keep long creek gangster came from <laughs> and then um you know. You know, right when I started paddling, you know, I started growing up with Holt and paddled a lot with him, and then met uh, Ben and Jackson, and uh, you know, from there it kind of took off. And everybody's like, "Oh, you guys are the Long Creek gangsters!" And you know, it's kind of funny because you know, we were all sitting around talking about this the other day, but uh, you know, it, you know, we we you know, we we definitely try to um, talk a lot of good stuff about Long Creek gangsters. But you know, it, it really, it came upon everybody else really talking about us and being like. Oh, man, those guys are pretty cool. So we, uh, we kind of with them, you know? we're pretty cool, man. We're pretty cool.
1: Wait, I got to back you up a second. You called him – what did you call the guy? The town what? Hobro? No, Hobro. <laughs> yeah, the Hobro.
3: No, the town hobo, you know. Uh, oh. Stays, uh pretty pretty intoxicated a lot of the time, but uh, he's a guy.
5: <laughs> yeah, so
3: have you ever seen those uh, those old team scum shirts
5: um, with the dude with the long hair on them? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
3: that's Glenn. <laughs> sick i didn't know that yeah <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. and they kind of, and team scum made some uh shirts that say keep long creek gangster but you know they kind of just like let us use it i guess yeah
0: well <laughs> i'm a big fan but we're not here to talk about the gangsters today um we're here to talk about logging in the Chattooga headwaters. so real quick boys give us an update on what's going on up there and maybe yeah. uh what our listeners can do to help the cause
5: Yeah. Yeah. So basically there's this, uh, this thing called the South side project that's going on right now. And, um, from it's from the forest service and it's a land management project, um, in the headwaters, but, um, basically it's a commercial timber sale. Um, they're trying to log about 317 acres in the headwaters, um, up around section double zero and actually even over towards, uh, the whitewater. Um, there's a there's a stand that goes all the way down to river right where the mini gorge is Um, and so that's all proposed to be logged uh, for sale Um, and the issue with that is I mean one you know we don't just really don't want like a bunch of logging up here but um, the other issue is there's a lot of old growth in um, in that area and um, there's also like you know, there's two rivers the salamander capital of the world and so there's this rare uh, green salamander up there around Brushy mountain which is one of the stands um and uh basically yeah having having that area log poses a huge threat to uh the salamanders as well as um you know old growth which we only have a half of a percent of like left here in the southeast so um it's kind of this crazy thing that's going on right now that um you know it doesn't make make too much sense if you're just thinking about even logically so south
0: side project so real quick i want to throw this over to lewis and see if he's got any little nuggets of advice for these guys any ways to to stop this minimalize it you know any way to move forward for them
1: yeah i mean maybe what uh tell me what what have you guys done so far i don't want to uh or you guys just heard of well so
5: yeah yeah totally this is um this has basically been a big project for the Chatuga Conservancy. The, the Chatuga Conservancy is uh, a group that's here on uh, the and They're kind of like the guardians of it. Um, you know, for those you know people out there who don't know, the Chatuga's is wild and scenic river. Um, you know, it, it's amazing, <laughs> and the conservancy is basically kind of like the guardians of it. They uh, they're all about you know promoting, protecting, and restoring like natural ecosystems around there. So they have been fighting this thing from the very beginning. And um, you know it's become pretty um, visible here in the southeast, at least like at least people around Long Creek are pretty aware of what's going on. Um, you know there a commenting process; every lots of people commented on it. Um, there was a public meeting where there was even like a protest. I think eighty people showed up to the protest, um, the the Forest Service even said that it was the biggest like showing of people they had had for a project in the past few decades. Um, but they've still decided not to listen to it. Something that I uh, um, forgot to mention earlier was that they just released, like, their kind of decision on it, saying that they're going to go ahead and do it. Um, the, that's logging wouldn't actually start until 2021, I think. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, it's not over yet. I mean, the Conservancy is looking into, like, legal action and stuff like that. And I think that the biggest thing right now is like just getting, making sure the public is like talking about it because, you know, the forest service works for us. And so we kind of, kind of got to make sure that they our voices are heard.
1: Yeah, man, that's awesome. Like, I mean, not awesome that that's happening, but I'm stoked that you guys are, are so on it down there and showing up for those public meetings and, and participating in the comment processes and, you know, working with a group like there's too good conservancy. I mean, all that, it sounds like you guys don't need any advice from me, but um yeah, I mean we talk a lot about uh you know, about forest planning and why it's you know important for people to participate when these forest plans are going through revision because that's kind of like the earliest opportunity to head off things like this by kind of identifying places in advance that yeah, I- really should be respected as not suitable for commercial timber harvest. Um yeah, I, I guess I'm less I've worked less on like specific timber sales like that but yeah. I mean it seems like you guys are really approaching it in the right way. Have you uh, have you talked to Kevin Colburn about it at all?
5: Uh, I have not personally. I know that there's some interaction between him and the um, Conservancy. there's basically the the National Forest uh, plan revision is kind of in the works right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: they, they put out um some Is this in
1: of, This is in one of those national Carolina. forests.
5: Yeah. Yeah, so the this is happening in the Nantahala Pisgah National Forest, which is in uh Got it. In western North Carolina. Um but uh but anyways, they're putting out this new uh revision plan or yeah, new revision and it actually received over 20,000 comments. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on with that. But, um, part of that is figuring out which rivers are eligible to become wild and scenic. And so something that's super important, um, that the public can be doing right now is making sure that, um, you know, there like certain areas, I mean, like overflow is one of the, one of the overflow Creek, which is a tributary of the Chautuga. It's not wild and scenic right now, but it was, um, proposed because they said that it was, uh. It like, fell under all the designations. Yeah, it fell. It fell under all of yeah the designations to become um, wild and scenic. And so, as part of the the new forest plan, they're talking about that, as well as the Whitewater, the Upper Whitewater River, um, is being talked about that. Which, if that, if they decided that it was eligible to become wild and scenic, they would have to drop the um, the stands that they're planning to harvest uh, along the river.
1: Um, Got it. So, you guys, your understanding is that. The the decision on this timber sale would be potentially rescinded or or not put into effect based on the new forest plan.
5: Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: Well, some Got of it. it
5: so there there are, uh, I think I think uh, maybe fourteen or fifteen stands total that make up. They're they're all like relatively small stands, but all around this area in a pretty you know close concentration, um, and yeah so some of them would become ineligible to be cut if um according to the new forest plan depending on like what comes out then so that's like where at least the public has the biggest opportunity to do something about this
1: awesome so we've been you know after alliance we've been working really heavily on the Nana Hale plan revisions mainly led by kevin colburn from aw so you know expect i i believe i'm it's terrible that i can't recollect this precisely but i believe that the draft plan is meant to come out this spring and when that happens there'll be a big comment period around that and like a real opportunity to make a big public push here
5: yeah
1: but uh i would love to you know help you guys out or like connect you guys to people who would have better expertise than me on this and i stoked you guys are, are fired up to fight this thing it seems yeah like,
5: that would that'd be awesome
1: it seems like all we got to do is give mark meadows a call and he'll yeah. Yeah, for real. Mark so, Meadows,
5: take care of business,
1: man. <laughs> I mean, so Colburn and, and those guys go in and talk to Mark Meadows. Like when they go to DC and they've talked to him. I mean, I think that he had you know, early in the in the force planning process in the nana Hale Pisga, he was ready to just like blow the whole thing up and just start throwing bombs at this process. And I you know, my sense is that that Kevin and Mark Singleton you know, working with a ton of other stakeholders on that plan revision process have like, kind of walked Meadows back from that a little bit. And we're just like, no, no, like, things are going good down here. We have this really unprecedented collaboration, working with the loggers, working with the conservation groups, working with the kayakers, the mountain bikers, and the climbers. And, like, we're all collaborating on this thing, and it's, you know, it's taken a long time, but... You know we're, we're working it out like don't blow up the process and he was like oh okay so like you know i mean just is everything you want to say about mark meadows like you know even guys <laughs> like that even guys like that there is it's not like totally futile to try to you know try to yeah, talk them off the ledge a little bit
2: yeah <laughs> can, I, can i ask a quiz question yeah yeah I, I gotta be honest you guys don't sound like gangsters <laughs> I'm Dude, I
5: it. mean, this is just our day job,
2: man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like the Long Creek, like, Ci- Citizens Alliance. I uh, thought it maybe a name change
3: or a branding effort. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, we keep Long Creek gangsters. Dude. That's yeah. how it is. We keep not Long Creek gangsters. Like, the thing is, like... The very studious gangsters. Nothing if, but if gangster. You, nothing but Gangster. Like,
5: you know, so just remember, it, it, it's not a fuck. gang. It's a
3: club. <laughs> That's what you guys
5: are getting all wrong. It's not a gang. It's a club. The other thing is, you know, like, a lot of people, you know, get on and they'll start talking all sorts of stuff about how big and bad they are. But, you know, like, if, if, you, if you do it, you don't need to talk about it. That's all I
0: have. Hey, you're just laying in the woods with a 30-odd six ready to smoke their ass.
2: <laughs> <clears throat>
0: hey, boys, we got to move on here in the show. I loved, like – You know, your guys' big mission, going camping up there, all the pictures and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, man, it's just like you're fighting a good fight. And I just wanted to bring you guys on to just kind of give you a little voice. And, you know, you guys can go back to ganking people and whatever you got to do. But
2: (laughs) Thanks,
5: man. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, one last thing. You know, I think that the most important thing people can be doing is – is like getting out there, going seeing the places, go up to Brushy Mountain, go down to the Whitewater Mini Gorge, go over to Ammon's Branch, you know, anywhere. I can I can give you guys all the GPS coordinates. Yeah, reach out to the Gangster Page. Stuff. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> hey. Um, be- yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much for having us on. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah.
0: Before I throw you, before we, I let you go. What do you guys think about Fourth of July for the rodeo?
5: Whoo, that would that'd be sick. I just don't know how many people are gonna be here. You know.
0: You think we gotta do it later than that?
5: I think we got to do it later. I don't think I'm going to be here. I don't think Hunter's going to be here. I don't think Holt's going to be here. You know, I think the constituency from our side of town is, like, not going to be here.
3: Okay. Yeah. You...
0: That's kind of my thoughts on it, too.
3: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> All right, boys. Well, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, yeah. thanks for having us. Thanks, you guys Sean. stay easy. Yeah, thanks,
0: boys. See so, ya. Yeah. All right, boys. Now we're on to Rocky Contos
1: here. Man. I feel like the Long Creek gangsters are just continually rising in my esteem.
0: <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to keep them gangster. I'm not going to let them go soft. Not yet.
2: Who's the Tide Pod yeah, Bandits.
0: Tide Pod Bandits. The Tide Pod Bandits. That's Jake Cooper. They're, they're, they're also, you know, super rad dudes, but, Lewis pretty much put them into no man's land with the five Bandits. That <laughs> was not you guys. I'm no, trying to put that on me. No, you no, never no. Come up
1: anything as witty as five Gangsters or the five Bandits. Was that me?
0: Well, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, boys. <laughs> that was that was not the best. Um, all right, let's see if we can get Rocky Contos on here. Now, I'm I'm with you, Lewis. I you know I'm just. I mean, they're legitimately going up there and trying to make an effort. They all grew up there. They're super authentic voices for the region. Sick
1: kayakers. Yeah, and
0: they're good at kayaking. All right, let's move into uh, Rocky Contos here. Let's see if we can get him on. There's like three things we've passed by. We're going to have to do some more listener mails and some more things here in a little bit after we get Rocky off. You guys down to do that? I say we make this the longest show we've ever had. (laughs)
2: What would that be, like four and a half hours?
0: (laughs) Let's just bust it until, I mean,
1: until. I feel like I used up all my talking in D.C. last week and just, like, (laughs) talked out. (laughs) Rocky, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Rocky. uh, You're on
0: the show with, uh, I can hear you just fine. You're on the show with Lewis Geltman and John Weld and myself. How are you doing?
4: Okay. Great. How are you guys?
0: Oh, we're doing pretty good here. We just got off the uh, horn with the Long Creek Gangsters. Do you know about the Long Creek Gangsters?
2: No. Tell me about them. <laughs> <laughs> They're not what they sound like, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Very nice. Group they go, young, young guys. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be proud to bring them home.
0: I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't go that far, bro. Um, It's
2: pretty cold out there right now.
4: uh, It's
0: a little chilly here in the southeast, but not too bad. Where are you at, Rocky?
4: I'm in San Diego. It's a little cooler than normal here, but it's around 60 degrees. Sounds brutal. (laughs)
0: well well, Rocky I got a I got a I got a few sentences here to introduce you you're a uh, Rocky Contas is a PhD in neuroscience you're the director of Sierra Rios avid kayaker rafter explorer activist and guide you have 107 first descents in Mexico alone and you completed the the first full descent of the Amazon starting at the highest source to the sea so that's that's quite the explorer's resume there. Is there anything I left out of that or anything, uh, any any little tidbits about you our audience may want to know?
4: No, that's the main things. Um, I've done quite a number of first descents in some of the other countries in Latin America and Central America, Peru, Bolivia primarily, and um, yeah, that's about all for exploratory stuff. And then I don't know if you're going to get into, but the other stuff I... Do a lot now is just. Uh, I was originally a kayaker, but I've started focusing on these raftable multi day Grand Canyon type trips, and that's kind of encompassing most of my time these days.
0: Yeah,
3: this is a unique
0: thing. Um, I do have that on my list of topics to go over with the uh, setting up the guided trips, getting the infrastructure, training, the in- infrastructure, and training the guides and everything. But <clears throat> first, how did you get into, where did the fascination with Mexico start?
4: Well, so I, I grew up in California and started paddling out here on the Russian River in South Work America, and in Northern California uh, when I was in late high school and in, in college at UC Davis. And that was kind of during the time when the Holbeck and Stanley book came out kind of in the early nineties and everybody was that whole decade, everybody was really amped to go out and paddle all those rivers in the Sierra, all the new tougher runs. And it was still kind of an exploratory uh, uh, mindset among a lot of paddlers to get out all these. And what I did, I just looked, I said, yeah, all these rivers in the West and in the Sierra Nevada and stuff, they've all been discovered, but no, pretty much nobody looks down just south of the border, all those rivers in the Sierra Madre of Mexico. I mean, what people have been doing and what have been known is where the rivers have water in the winter, and the dry season, they go down to Veracruz, San Luis Potosí and maybe Chiapas. And that's all kind of on the eastern side of Mexico. But most of the rivers in Mexico are the ones that drain into the Pacific and they're very much more seasonal They go with the monsoon rains, which generally start up June, and they're going through October. And that's when the rivers have a lot of water. And nobody really was thinking, I don't know, there there just was hardly anything that had been done in all those river drainage systems that go down into uh, the Pacific, starting from the Copper Canyon area in the north all the way down through Oaxaca. Uh, so I, I, I was really into geography and maps and looking at climate data and you know, I was like mapping out every one of the rivers and their drainage areas, trying to estimate their flows, gathering all the info as much as possible on everything and everyone, everything that had been paddled before down there. There were a few that had been paddled, but like of a hundred rivers, most of them multi-day trips, maybe, maybe 10 or 20 had been done. Hmm. So, you get the right season, you get the right info and data and stuff, and, and and it was just kind of going down there and just doing them all. I mean, I ended up doing a lot of it solo, because it's hard to get boaters to come down for lengthy periods of time and do exploratories with you, but um, it was fun. It was an interesting, interesting time. I mean, I spent probably... 10 years, I was going down there every most years for a month to six months, and, and just uh, doing paddling all the new rivers down
2: there. So you, you were doing most of your paddling on the, on the west coast of Mexico, going towards the Pacific?
4: I had started, and I, that's where all my focus was for the first eight years, um, and then after that, I said, I better do all the rivers that everybody already knew on the east as well. Yeah. So I went over there and did all the known ones and and a bunch of new ones over there as well that people hadn't really looked at. Actually, there were a bunch of guys from North Carolina that came down one uh, fall, and we, we paddled a bunch of first descents around,
1: where was it? It was around
4: the... Alpha Seca, a little north of there, there's a there's a whole slew of other rivers that people don't paddle very much. They're not all the greatest. They have portages and and stuff. But there there's some pretty cool other options there that people still don't know about.
2: For sure. Tom McEwen and and I and a bunch of other people started kayaking down there in the late eighties and were down there every winter for about well, I was down there every winter for about five or six years, and Tom's still down there every winter um, paddling. Um, but we'd always focused on the East coast. I, I don't know, personally, I always, I, I, you know, this was based on pure conjecture, but I was like, I always felt like the West coast would be, there'd be a lot of accessibility issues, but then also I was always worried about, about crime on that side of the, on that side of the country. Um, did you have any, really any experiences, like any real problems with that or beyond the ordinary stuff or,
4: So uh, overall, my experiences on that side and then all of Mexico have been really good. I haven't really run into major problems with people and narco, traficantes, anywhere. Um, And it's true that there is a lot of drugs moving up through the country and the publicity around the violent uh, killings, and attacks, and the sequestrations, and stuff. I mean, that makes a lot of big news, but that doesn't hasn't really affected me whenever I was out there doing uh, all my trips, and I was out there alone a lot of the time, and I definitely met a lot of the guys who were growing weed in the Sierra Madre in places. I've come upon it many times paddling down rivers. You just come upon these big groves of People are growing marijuana. They just have a ton of plants growing and nobody around. I mean, you can right. grab a plant or something. That can be a little
2: risky, but... Uh. <laughs> so, I don't want to get too into details, but I, I want to I ask this before we get before we move on to other subjects. What, what's your boat of choice right now for a big expedition? Like For, I, a, big, for, for a whitewater trip.
4: I still like the... Uh, I think I like I, the Nomad the most. Nomad or Mamba. Dagger. No matter, Mamba.
2: And then how many how many days can you how many days can you make it in one of those boats?
4: I've gone up to ten days. Ten days. Packing and <laughs> stuff. With actually, I'll say that my well, I have so many boats around the world. I don't know. I I actually really like the Liquid Logics a lot. Like a Stomper Eighty is another one of my favorites. So I don't know. I I, I kind of I can't pinpoint one. Uh, of those boats for sure but I'd say the certainly the the nomad is very uh, stable and and reliable and it has been for probably 20 years now like a staple boat
2: I, I guess when you put 60 pounds of gear in a boat too it, it, it <laughs> the distinctions between them start to get blurred a little bit <laughs> so what's your, what's your what's your food strategy like when you pack for 10 days how do you pack how do you pack the food so,
4: I always take out the back pillar of uh, the creek boat. And that allows me to put in one large dry bag in the back, and then I just stuff that in there
1: right. empty.
4: Or I put, I'll put in like my thermarest in there to give it a little bit, put, put, put it out around the whole thing. And then from there, I just stuff in all my other gear, including the. I always take a tent, I always take a thermorist that can be converted into a chair um, and my sleeping bag, plus food and and a little stove. And the food that I usually take, um, not always the lightest stuff. I mean, on these, you want to minimize how much you take uh, weight-wise, especially if you're doing longer trips. Yeah, you, You need to take a lot of things like pasta. I take these dehydrated, Uh, instant refried beans I'll take tortillas Um, bread is not that great to take because it squishes and then it it loses its form and (laughs) not very good but I'll take cereal dried dehydrated milk you can make up that stuff dried fruits are great nuts trail mix Um, tortillas like flour tortillas they hold up really well You can take. What else do I take? Cans of tuna are really good. Little bit of condiments like mustard. I'll take a little bit of vegetables to put on my sandwiches or wraps. And then for dinners, it's usually a pasta or some kind of burrito
2: um, or a soup or stew type thing. And then, do you try and get gear in front of your feet, or is that do you not bother with that?
4: Oh yeah, it's always nice to try and balance the weight out a bit and. in a loaded expedition kayak. So I try to put heavier things up in front of the bulkhead and that ends up often being a lot of the cans that I bring and maybe a little propane bottle for my stove. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, uh, you're limited there depending on how easy it is to pull that bulkhead out. Sometimes, you know, like the liquid logic boats, they're a little harder to always pull that out each day and and put it back in
0: what about what if i were going to go down to mexico and i wanted to get on one of these these overnighters that you've explored what is the number one what's the one i should hit
4: well geez that's a that's tough on i have a list of probably six that are really tops to do and it depends also on how how difficult uh factor you want want to challenge but in general the the nicest ones that i would recommend have generally few portages incredible scenery clean river clean water few people around um and they tend to be about a week long there's one that i that's not so difficult, and I take people on a lot in Chiapas. It's a Lacanha, and we usually take people down that in five to seven days, about uh, sixty, seventy miles. But it's just a lot of travertine drops, and that's in really pristine uh, jungle.
0: How do you spell that? And you
4: go by some Mayan ruins, mm-hmm. and you see the howler monkeys and stuff. That that area of Mexico is just so unique and different. It's just an incredible experience. But it's like a class three. Three trip.
0: What's the name of it again?
4: That one's called the Lacanha. L-A-C-A-N-J-A. Um, and that, but that's an easier one. Um, and I would say for if I were recommending something for maybe like you guys, go up to like a class four or five difficulty level. And there's one that always pops out in my mind as a great kind of multi-day kayak descent. It's actually in Sakatikas in Jalisco called Rio Atengo. I've done it twice. There's an upper section that we do in about four or five days and then a, a main or lower section that we often do in like six days. That's like a maybe 10 day, 10, 11 day trip if you do the whole thing. About 250 miles maybe. Oh Wow. Wow it's yeah. a big one just beautiful gorges you're going through challenging interesting rapids there's a few portages in there there's this one section you go by in the middle of it just i call it sabino alley so the sabinos are like these big cedar trees you guys see them in the in the south in places in the uh, swampy areas but there in mexico and Starting around that area and going south into Oaxaca, you have those trees that line the banks of the river, and they just make an incredible... They're, they're like giant, wide trunks and a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, uh, section of, of river to float through when you have those trees along the side. And then you're going through... Um, there's all these springs coming in and hot springs and... I don't know. Yeah. That's that just... Overall, for quality of uh, all those factors that I was saying before, just kind of minimal portages, interesting and fun rapids, um, being pretty very clean river, um, and having really incredible scenery and little great camps and stuff. That one's one of the tops.
0: Rio Atengo, is that what it was? Rio
4: Atengo, yeah, A T E N G O.
0: I'm sold.
1: Yeah, seriously, let's go. <laughs>
4: there, there is one issue with that one. It's a little tougher to get, get it with optimal flow. Um, that one is definitely a rain-fed river, so you got to do it in the main monsoon season, July, August, September. Um, and I've been out there at least a couple times. I remember I was trying to do it initially, and I got... I got stumped on the flow being too low you, and they were actually drier kind uh, of throughout years. But when you get there, it, it runs pretty much every year. Uh, pretty, pretty good. The average flow kind of midway down is about 1,500 to 2,000 CFS. If you get it with kind of real low water, maybe 10% probability, you'll have something like 300 CFS and you'll then the upper 10%. Probability you might be seeing three or four thousand. What
0: about the worst trip? What about the one that you're like, don't ever go there?
4: Uh, <laughs> well, there's a few in that category. <laughs> okay, first one I don't recommend anybody going is the Grande de Santiago, the one that comes out of Guadalajara. That was a, a really big river, big drainage in, in Mexico. That was one of the first ones that had been paddled in Mexico by Georgie. White back in the nineteen late fifties and sixties, but it drains probably where twenty to thirty million people oh, live, in the <laughs> central, well, including maybe five to eight million people in Guadalajara. Just, it, it would have been an incredible river, incredible trip.
3: Except my except four, my skin six, fell seven, off. <laughs> Thirteen
2: twenty would have been great. Um,
4: there's one there's one other i want to mention and it's that i wouldn't do again and that was one that ben stokesbury came down to do with me and that was the piaxla um, and that ended up just having heinous portage in the middle of it that we went around this section i knew there was going to be a terrible portage because you could see on the maps it ever dropped 2,000 feet and like a a mile or two, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we ended up having to spend a full day portaging, there were like 13 rappels to get back down in the river, we ran out of water, um, led to some arguing, (laughs) (laughs) it's a beautiful river, it's clean. It's got some incredible whitewater. But with that portage and then all the other ones that we had in there, yeah, I, it was just a little too too much of the uh, difficulty factor. Maybe with a pack raft, it wouldn't be so bad.
2: <laughs> so how about the Amazon? What, what tributary did you paddle down on the Amazon? Where'd you start? Well,
4: yeah, for the Amazon, there... I, I had been doing all that exploration in Mexico. Um, and then I was kind of at a change in career in my life and stuff. And I was actually going to go back and do an MBA. But then I was looking. I wanted to do one last hurrah and, and go somewhere very different and do, spend a few months paddling. So I looked at, I always had Peru on my mind. I started looking at all the rivers there. And... When I was doing the same kind of analysis on the rivers there, one of the biggest, uh, most popular, interesting trips and rivers in in Peru is the headwaters of the Amazon. It was always thought to be Rio Aparimac,
3: mm-hmm. which uh-huh.
4: goes near Cusco and then it flows down and then it joins a, a few other rivers. It becomes the NA and then the Tambo and then the Ucayali. And the reason they thought that was the source of the Amazon is if you go upstream from the mouth of the Amazon, as far as you can, that that's where they thought that you would end up is up at the headwaters or the source of the Aparimac. Um, so I started looking at that and I was looking at these other rivers that kind of looked about as long as the Aparimac to me. And I said, I don't know, people really look at these carefully. So I started measuring those. And at that time, yeah, Google earth was around pretty well and you could, you could trace and, and figure out exactly how far um, your trace was. And and I determined that the, this big branch, the one that joins the upper Mac, it's called Rio Montaro, was almost 80 kilometers longer to get up to its source point. And I mean, I thought that was a, a pretty major discovery or change in what people would be thinking about, because there's a lot of, uh, explorers and adventurers who want to go and paddle from source to sea on the biggest or the most voluminous or the longest river in the world, and the Amazon kind of fits that bill, depending on your definition. It's certainly the most voluminous river at the end, and it can be the longest river uh, compared to the Nile, depending on which channels you take. Um, so anyway, I I I thought that was pretty big news. I started. Writing up uh, some grant proposals. I sent it out to National Geographic and the Chip, chip and Tillman and all these, and nobody, nobody cared. Nobody wanted to you know, expedition.
0: Welcome to Whitewater. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. uh, but then I got a hold of the, this guy who lives out there in Washington, D.C. now. His name's Piotr Milinski. was one of yeah. the guys, and he was kind of the central character in the book running the amazon that was published back in 86 or 87 mm-hmm. and what they had done is paddle from source to sea starting on the aperimac, and he was the only one out of their their group that actually paddled pretty much the entire length of it the guy who wrote the book joe Kane, like walked a lot and he wrote in the raft for some and then he paddled the whole lower flat water section with Piot. But anyway, that guy Piot, um well, there there was a whole saga thing going. There was another guy that same year who was thinking this was 2012. He was he wanted to do this the same trip that Piotr had done and just do it in the fastest way possible. His name was West Hansen, so I contacted him just to see what his plans were, how he was planning to get down all the whitewater, because he wasn't a whitewater paddler. Um, I didn't tell him my discovery yet, but he was in contact with Piotr Milinski, and I had already initiated a little bit of contact with him. Anyway, I got in contact with Piotr, and Piotr had a lot of connections with National Geographic. I told Piotr my discovery, and he said, What? These guys at National Geographic aren't doing anything about this? So, he uh, went and talked to his friends there, and he said, if they don't fund you, I will personally fund your expedition. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, he came through with a, 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 a nah, it wasn't that much, it was five or $7,000 we could use to, so I got a few of my uh, friends out there, and we did that whole source expedition. And my goal at that point wasn't to do the whole Montaro, starting at the source, all the way to the mouth of the Amazon. I just wanted to cover the the whole new section of river, which was the whole Montara, which was about 800 kilometers or 500 miles of river, starting up at over 4,000 meter elevation, or what that's like 14,000 feet, and you're going down to maybe uh, 200 meter, 300 meter elevation, so maybe 500 or a thousand feet, and I wanted to cover all of that as the exhibition and also paddled the entire Aparimac so I could compare the distances with a GPS as one of the ways to to actually measure them accurately I mean you can look on satellite imagery and and get a pretty accurate distance uh, of how long a river is looking at that way but also just taking a GPS and, and tracking as you paddle down the whole river is another way
0: how long did it take um, you to go from 14,000 feet to the ocean?
4: Uh, well, I paddled the whole Montaro and then all the way down through the end of the Andes, which was roughly, I don't know, I think it was 1,400 kilometers or so, maybe 800, 900 miles. And then that took, to do the whole Montaro took almost a month, Um and doing those extra sections to the end of the Andes. And then from there down, I had the choice to paddle the rest of the way. So the rest of the way on the Amazon would be another like 5,000 kilometers. And that's not wasn't very appealing to me at that time, <laughs> to paddle the water all the way. And there were a lot of other dangers uh, risks involved in that section because... When you're paddling through the jungle, there's a lot of people who will come up to you and just rob you. I mean, they call them pirates, they call them bandits or whatever, but they just don't care who you are. They'll come up to you with a gun and they'll shoot you and take whatever you have. And that's happened multiple times with people paddling, especially in that section near the Upeyali. Um but anyway, I forwent the paddle, the solo paddling on the river all the way down, and I hopped on motorboats. I did complete the whole journey, but I wasn't paddling the whole thing. And I, yeah, so I came under a little bit of criticism because of that. But whatever, I I completed all the way to the mouth. so.
0: Well, I'll give you props. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So That's I fascinating, think. man. So let me ask you. Oh, go yeah,
4: ahead. do the whole thing, you could go down the rest of the Amazon in about three or four weeks. Um, four weeks on motorboats, and for the, uh... I got some. Hold on a minute. Uh, send a voicemail. Yeah, and for the the part in the Andes with all the white wire, that took a little, a little over a month. So you can do it all in about two months, if, if you if you don't mind hopping on motorboats.
0: Through all this time, Rocky, when you were going down and doing these 107 first ascents and whatever, how were you funding all that? Were you like living in your mom's basement, or like how do you how'd you pull yeah, that, that off? Yeah,
4: that was all self-funded, and I'm not I'm not wealthy by any. Uh, way you can you might define it um, I basically yeah I put myself through college and stuff with scholarships and just work-study and stuff um, and I was working as a postdoc and not making very much money doing that but it was enough if I without having like a family or anything to support I think with general Uh, wages that you make in the U.S., you can work six months a year and have enough to travel. If you travel frugally, um, you can still get out and and do a lot um, of paddling and and just traveling. Um, But yeah, when I was down there, I would drive my, my Toyota pickup down and I would sleep in cheap hostels or stay with families or friends or, or be camping most of the time when I was on the, on the trips. Um, so it ended up not costing. I mean, I, I can't remember how much I needed for three months. It probably came out to like six thousand bucks, a couple thousand a month or something.
2: Well, did you did you keep records of all these things? Or is this published anywhere or online? I mean, someplace where you can see a documentation of all these amazing things you've seen?
4: yeah i took really good notes and and uh was writing up everything and it that takes a lot of time too and i i wrote one full complete guidebook to one area i call it the um, mexican whitewater the norte area and i had three other areas that i was going to do the occidental the sur and the um, oriental so like the west south and east um but it's a I mean, there's a lot of material in there, a lot of rivers. It's probably too much for most people. Uh, And you can, I I sell, I've sold a bunch of those books. I don't really promote it or do much to sell it. There was another book on Chiapas and Belize that I co-wrote with Greg Schwendinger, who's a friend of mine who was doing a lot of the same kinds of exploration in Chiapas, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Um, and the other areas I still haven't gotten around to compiling and publishing those books but I have all the data here and I have a bunch of photos up of a lot of those trips on the website that I have which is crrios.org
1: you can look at
4: some photos there I think people see that sometimes I get an email here and there of somebody interested in one of the rivers in Colima or Jalisco or something like that but
1: So can you, uh, this is sort of like a two-part question, but can you talk a little bit about just your process and everything kind of leading up to the put-in? Like, how are you finding these places? How are you prioritizing? How are you thinking about weather? And then just sort of like from that, like what's your advice to young guys out there right now who have time, want to go get on a mish and, you know, hear this and are like, I want in.
4: Well, if you want to want to do an exploratory or first descent i think that was my mentality for a lot of these trips i'll just address that first um man you got to do your research on the river you got to know a little bit about its flow characteristics um so you got to know about the climate of the area if you can't just get straight hydrological data you got to know if it's rain fed, if it's snow melt, if it's spring fed. I mean, some rivers have wild fluctuations, like a lot of the ones I was doing in Mexico that are rain fed. I mean, they go up and down. You guys in the southeast there, um, you guys are, are used to that because you got to hop on a lot of those little creeks and stuff only right after a rainstorm, I know.
0: Well, they always run now. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, so for something like Mexico, in that that area of Mexico, once you know kind of the general characteristic when the monsoon rains are coming in, when the rivers are going to have enough water, that you kind of plan your trip to be during that time. I mean, you can still get get uh, unusual low flow or you can get an unusual flood, but in general, it's going to be kind of in the middle area of the flow range, and once you know that, you also need to know, look at maps to find out where you're going to put in, where you're going to take out, what the gradient is on the river, give you an idea of roughly what the rapids are going to be like. And when you're looking at a real small creek or something, yeah, you can you can go for 100, 200 feet per mile and um, expect it to have a lot of cool and fun whitewater and probably some portages. If you're looking at maybe 50 to hundred feet per mile, which is probably a little more ideal and reasonable, you'll have a lot fewer portages, a lot more paddleable stuff and not much, uh, flat water at all. If you're looking at 30 to 50 feet per mile, you're looking at more like a class three or four river. So you gotta have kind of an idea of what the, the characteristics are going to be like, what you're expecting. And, that um, kind of determines who else might want to join you. I mean, not everybody is just a gung ho Class Five exploratory kayaker to go out and challenge anything. I mean, you can get stumped big time going out on some of those, and just having a portage fest and people getting hurt and, and things. Where would so, you where,
0: where would you send an ambitious crew looking for some rowdy first ascents? Where would you point? There's at?
4: a lot left in the world to do. There's a lot left in Bolivia. There's a lot left in Africa. Um, there's a lot left in Asia still.
2: Specifically um,
0: where in Bolivia?
4: So in Bolivia, I've been out there running the two really big Grand Canyon type trips, which are the Pilcomayo and the San Pedro Grande, are the ones. But each of those has a lot of tributaries coming out and, run all those. Um, And when you get down, the rivers in Bolivia kind of start up in the Altiplano, and then they go through this desert area, and then they go down into the Amazon jungle type stuff. The the jungle areas gets a a lot more rain, the rivers have more reliable flow, and not many, there's a lot of those that still have not been paddled. Um, And even up in the highlands, there's still a lot that hasn't been done, and I think a lot of that is because it tends to be a little more seasonal. I mean, their monsoon season is the opposite of what it is in Mexico, so they're they're generally flowing January, February, and March.
0: I've always wanted to go to the Bolivia-Colombia zone. Hmm.
4: Yeah, Colombia Colombia has had a lot of exploration done by um, Jules Domine and, and a bunch of other guys who have been going out there of knocking off everything like that, that's that in Colombia but Colombia is nice in the sense that those rivers pretty much flow all year and they got rain almost all every month of the year so you can go anytime and and find them find them going well but in Bolivia yeah if you if anybody's interested just uh, you can send me an email I can send you some maps and stuff and
2: you on the right track for some Careful what you ask for (laughs) 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 You're going to have about 300 people emailing you So a while back we had a discussion here on the show Amongst us about uh, Sort of a guilty pleasure that we had all enjoyed Which was solo paddling Um, And then subsequently We got a lot of heat from it from our family members And also listeners saying it was unsafe Or unethical to go out paddling By yourself Um, Clearly you've done a lot of this And have different (laughs) thoughts I mean what's your take on that
4: Well, there's definitely a a big safety factor that comes with paddling with uh, with a a friend or a competent friend, I should say. Uh, And if you do paddle alone, I mean, if you're willing to accept the risks, it's that's exactly what it is. I mean. And yeah, I've done a, a lot of my first descents and exploratory stuff solo. I would back off if I thought uh, the river was going to be real serious, class five, with some really difficult portaging. I would wait until I had a, a partner to do something like that with. But going out on something that I thought was class four, with a few class fives that I'll probably be able to portage around if I want. Yeah, I didn't really have any any concerns or second thoughts about going in there solo, even if it were a four- or five-day remote trip. Um, and that doesn't mean I never got into problems because of that. I've, I've had my share of, there's one one time I remember, and this wasn't even, well, I'll give you, here's a little story. One of these rivers I did, um on uh, the coast of Michoacan, it's like a three-day thing from up higher in the mountains. Good class four or five, and then you get down. What I would often do on the rivers is paddle them all the way out to the coast, and then from there, paddle up to a little village somewhere with a nice beach, and from there, try to get back up to my truck or something, or if I didn't have a shuttle driver, bringing it back. And there's one particular <laughs> river I paddled down to the end. I was solo. And I'm like, great! I'm all down here at the at the ocean. And I'm looking out at the ocean and see some waves coming in. And I'm paddling out into the the break zone at the mouth. And all of a sudden, there there were some sleeper waves that just kind of they they come up out of nowhere. <laughs> and when you get like a 10, 12 foot wave that just comes up and and crashes crashes you over. Um, it's usually not a problem. I mean, you, you, get, you get pummeled a little bit, um, then you roll up and you have to deal with the next try and get out. But in this case, one of those hit me pretty hard and then I took my paddle away. Um, <laughs> and then I had rolled up, but I couldn't get back to my paddle before the next one started coming in and started pumping more, so then I had to swim. And then that was a bad situation because it, it, it was at just before dusk when I was there trying to do that. So I I got really pummeled around, stuck down on the sand a bunch of times. I finally made it into shore, but my boat with all my camping gear and my wallet and my paddle were out out there in the break zone or beyond it. <laughs> and then it got dark. <laughs> <laughs> Then I I had to, I I tried to talk to some people around there and ended up camping, sleeping out in some hammock and getting bit by mosquitoes. I got dengue. I didn't get the boat back. (laughs) But that just kind of gives you an idea if I had a partner there... With another kayak or something who wasn't running into the same problem. They could have gone out, gotten my kayak, kind of avoided that whole situation for me. But because I was solo, yeah, I ran into problems like
0: that. That's an epic story. I mean, the, the way that's you like, delivered like, that story, Rocky. It's a is... understatement. <laughs> yeah.
1: that's from, like, the it's not over till it's over file, You now. Yeah,
4: it's not, it's not always just, like, some heinous Class 5 Plus Gorge rapid that you're going to come upon. Those happen, too, but that's kind of more of a, an exception than, than the role for when you run into problems as a solo paddler. I mean, solo paddling problems are more... You lose some gear, or you 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 have to walk out, you or you get hurt, um, and you don't have somebody to really help you get through um, that situation easily.
0: Before we get uh, before we run out of time, one thing that I thought was super interesting on reading up on your bio, and I think this is a really unique form of activism, and I, I don't know if you consider this activism, but You'll go to these places, kind of do the first ascent, set up the logistics. And this is a, a, you know, I saw you do a profile on a river in Argentina. The the name of the river is escaping me. It came out of a, a dam. It had super, super clear blue water. But you'll set up this rafting operation. You'll train up some guides, and you'll kind of create this little... I don't know, I want to say a little business, a little job opportunity there on the river where it didn't exist. Was that, did you find some success doing that one time and decide to replicate it? How did that idea come about?
4: Well, the, that idea mainly came about just because out of the conservation aspect, I mean, I want to bring more people out to these rivers. I want them to be known. Yeah, it's only when people start knowing what the rivers are like, what they offer in their natural free flowing state that you get uh, people wanting to protect them. Yeah. So,
0: I agree with that hundred percent. Lewis, he really doesn't want people to take pictures of the rivers and promote them, but I'm fully in your <laughs> camp. Rocky. Sorry. That was an inside joke, Rocky <laughs> from, from well, shows back, I, but I think that's, I think that's genius.
4: Um, But yeah. Uh, so like on, the river in Argentina, there's that one that that has this nice clear water. it's actually a fairly um, popular river now, the Illuminae, But there's a the uh, Grande Colorado is the one that I run the longer trip on there, and there's pretty much there's nobody paddling it. I mean, I did, part of the first descent of that of that trip, and and now it has. I was concerned but I didn't think there were dams planned on it when I went down there the first time in 2015. And then the next year I was reading about the, these plans to put this whole big dam complex in and five dams on the whole upper river. And then last year, just a year ago, the president, there was all these political things to try and get those projects through. But the president of Argentina like conspired with the governor of Mendoza and they, overrode some of the other politicians who didn't want to see that project go through, and they they approved it. It hasn't been started yet, but they approved it, and it's kind of open for a uh, construction company to come in and and take it up. They're having big economic problems in Argentina right now. I don't think it's going to happen right away, but it's just sad to see that because you get these incredible rivers like that. And this is like a river as nice as like the Middle Fork and Maine Salmon. And nobody's out there paddling it or something. And if you, if you had a politician here say, oh, we want to put a, a dam on the Middle Fork Salmon, I mean, there would be a huge outcry. And that's because people like to go there. They like to paddle it. They like to go there and fish and camp and just kind of enjoy it in its, in its natural, beautiful state. But, um, and people, people realize that, I mean, and it helps to, but what I try to do is just make more awareness, bringing the people out there, putting out these little petitions online. So people read about putting out video, writing articles, that kind of all gets the ball rolling. Um, and then movements start. And there's a river in Peru that I did a lot for the Mara um, which there's a lot of other people who are out there bringing other people to paddle it and and generating a lot more activism and getting a little bit more involved with the the politics there too. It's good. I like seeing that, that happen.
1: For sure.
0: Well, hats off to your passion, Rocky. That's super, super cool i don't know man i uh you've been silently doing a lot of amazing things in the background for many years personally i've been following your a lot of your trips and exploits i know that we've had conversations in the past about you know going down and i picked your brain about some spots in mexico and whatever but i don't know super interesting and 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 thanks for coming on the hammer factor do you guys have anything else for rocky
2: no that was that was awesome really cool yeah thank you well,
0: I yeah, really thanks.
4: appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to discuss some of these things with me yeah. if you guys ever want to come down on some trips yeah there's, there's a lot I, I got this equipment all over the world so it won't be so difficult you know, to fly with a kayak necessarily
0: <laughs> so where can our listeners learn more about you are you, uh, are you on social media platforms is it your website Sierra uh, Rios the best place to find you how does that work
4: Yeah, if you want to find, uh, right now I have all the information up on that website, ciarrios.org. And it's not a greatly designed website right now. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. I got some trips, upcoming trips listed, some links to the books and various new things, and a little map there in Mexico. But you can. If you browse through there you can find a lot of information on on the website there. I'm on Facebook as Rocky Contos. You can just uh, I post a lot of stuff there. Uh, and I I write an occasional article or something. So but if somebody's interested in any of these places, yeah, let me know. Big thing that's coming up for me in a couple of months is a Yangtze expedition. So i am kind of oh. upset on that i'll be out there for about two months to paddle all the remaining white water on the Yangtze. Hmm. that's got a lot of dams on it already and, and more. For sure so.
0: well we're going to have to have you back on the show after that that big adventure
4: yeah it be great
0: <laughs> all right rocky well thanks so much for the time yeah thank you great.
4: Great. you great thanks for giving me the opportunity
0: bye-bye
1: that's awesome Fascinating, huh? Yeah. What am I doing with my life, man?
2: Right? <laughs> What's wrong with you?
0: Well, we've got a lot of stuff to get into here. We've got a lot of listener mail. I'll sp- we've got- I'm
2: like a two-part show. We can knock out two shows here at once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've got some boat designs and reviews. We've got the high and dry to talk about.
2: The
1: big um, news of the high and dry.
0: The high and dry. We've got a lot of, a lot of emails, <laughs> a lot of comments on the high and dry.
1: I feel like there are like these things that like I can tell must have taken off on social media somewhere, and I've just totally missed it. And like all of a sudden, we get like like seven emails about something <laughs> like High and Dry, and you're just like imagining that there must be some, <laughs> haha, on Facebook or YouTube or something or Boater Talk or whatever. Well, let's 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 just
2: put that aside <laughs> for a moment. Back to that. Okay, can we talk about Tom McEwen?
0: Yeah, lead us off.
2: And this this is a great segue from Rocky Contos to Tom McEwen. McEwen
0: Thank you for listening to part one of episode sixty
2: two. Part two of this show coming soon.